So we have a rich teaching and a rich practice instruction that allows us to focus in on what's happening and where we're experiencing pleasure and pain and neutrality and to watch our reactions to that. And as our uh, our capacity to be present with our reactions increase, then our capacity to allow our reactions to soften in awareness also increases. And as our reactivity relaxes, then our, uh, our suffering in relationship to what's happening also relaxes. So it's um, exquisite the way this works. And certainly I have experienced, and I've seen many others experience, that we can be in something that's really challenging. And when we begin to dial into our reaction to it, we can release the things that are accumulated or extra on top of it. And so, um, you know, something that's challenging by itself is challenging. And when we are not making anything else out of it, when we're not anything anything else to it, then uh, it reduces or releases the experience of suffering connected to it. So I've experienced that with physical pain. I've experienced that with illness. I've experienced that with turbulent and disturbing mind states that I haven't wanted. You know, I've experienced that with grief. You know, when my dad died, it took um, quite a while for the grief to shift out of my system. And, you know, grief is one of these things that it's not a pleasant feeling, you know. And it takes as long as it takes in order for it to shift. And when I was responsive to my reactions to it and relaxing that, then I could attend to the grief by itself without adding anything else to it. So I had the the suffering or the pain of grief, but I didn't have the suffering of not wanting it to be there or hoping that it would quickly shift or hoping that I would soon feel um, different or that it would pass out of my system. So this process of watching where we experience uh, pleasure in our reaction to it, how we experience unpleasantness in our reaction to it, and the way that we tend to check out and not be present for what's neutral is a big leverage for understanding our craving and our longing and how to release those cravings and longings. So I, you know, one of the things that I really love about the Buddhist teachings is the way in which it's so um, powerful to um, impact and touch the things that we're experiencing in this world so that we have more resource and more ease, more well-being, more joy. Because when we are not craving, you know, what's there? What's present when we're not hoping something is goes away? You know? And what I experience is, is, is that there's a, an increasing capacity to feel a sense of contentment, of ease, of peace, of well-being, joy. There's more access to this all-pervasive awareness that I was talking about and more access to a quality of unconditioned love, which, like all-pervasive awareness, is something which I experience and permeates everything and everyone. And that's lovely, you know, to know that, to touch that, and to know that, you know, when the, when the dust settles, when the obscurations clear away, when I'm not engaged in battle or reaction or wanting or not wanting, and I'm not tr- 
trying to solidify my identity as one thing and push things out of my experience that aren't congruent with it. But this other stuff of ease and contentment and joy and well-being and awareness and unconditioned love is what's left. You know, that's what's there. That's lovely to know that that's what's there when the other things fall away. Mm. Very lovely. Yes, please, questions. Uh, now, you say that after you go, I would imagine, like, let's say, hit the boredom wall or whatever, and you sit with it, um, then you find that all these things fall away, and you find contentment through that, through the simplicity of that? So it's not that I hit the boredom wall and sit with it. Um, my experience with boredom is it's a direct um, proportion to the, it's an inverse proportion to the amount of curiosity that's present. So the more curious I am, the less bored I am. So boredom isn't just an endurance contents to sit and wait until it clears out. It's, a, it's an opportunity to, to focus more attention, like sharpen the lenses 10 times, 20 times, 40 times, 100 times, 1,000 times, and see what's there. So that's very different from just sitting with it. But my experience with some of these other mind states, like um, grief or wanting or not wanting or this kind of sense of ache, of, of loneliness, those things shift when I bring those skillful attention to them and they're not gripping my attention. More questions or comments? Yes, please. So that's a really important thing to see, is is that when we pay attention to something, even the quality of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral changes. Yeah. And, you know, our habit around pain is so deeply ingrained to resist, to react, to want to not have it, to get away from it, to move, to shift. And it, it drives a lot of our life. It drives a lot of the choices that we make. It drives a lot of where we put our time and the energy and resources. And yet, when we gather together the energy or the, the factors that make it possible just to be with it, we can realize we don't have to be bullied by this stuff, you know? There's a whole other way of being with it. That's a profound uh, recognition, you know? Very powerful. Because when we have that kind of an opening, all of a sudden, all of the energy that went into all of our reactive strategies is freed up. Yeah? And you can put that in a place of ease or joy or well-being or contentment. And isn't that wonderful to be able to put all of that energy into places where we can feel a sense of well-being and ease, you know? Just remarkable. Lovely. Yes, please. I have an interesting experience. It's relative to pain. And that was... Uh, 
that there was this anxiety. It wasn't just that I wanted to go away. Can you say more about the anxiety? Okay, well, the situation was that this morning, I was morning, oh, your instructions were so great, I was just relaxing into this great meditation. And suddenly I felt like I was going to faint. And I don't know whether my blood pressure lowered too much too fast, or uh, what, well, I've been fine this afternoon, and I can move around some But, so I, I lowered my head, and then I could continue meditating but there was this anxiety, what's going on And uh, then this, this, then I also got a sore knee, a sore hip right now. And I was anxious, and you know, oh, I get control? And I was I'm just all <laughs> Well, I think it's natural for any of us when all of a sudden something shifts quite strongly in our body, you know, where we're dealing with something brand new. You know, for many of us, that's anxiety producing, you know. Our initial response to big shifts in body conditions is anxiety. And that's a very interesting place to inquire, you know. And I think part of the reason why there's so much anxiety is because there's such a profound and deeply embedded identity that we are our body, you know. And so if something goes wrong with their body, something goes wrong with me, and that feels very threatening. So um, I wasn't at a conversation, but I heard about a conversation where somebody was speaking to a, a meditation master who was quite awake. Either he was an arahant, completely enlightened, or he was at the stage just beneath it. But, you know, for most of us, it's like out of our league, you know? A level of awakening that most of us don't have a real understanding of what that would mean. And there was somebody asking, you know, what was the most difficult thing? And his response was, my identification with my body, you know? So again, this is not Buddhism for babies. This is actually very deep-rooted. And what happens, you know, the hunger to exist, the longing to exist, and the way in which we are really um, cleaving to the sense that who we are is uh, a body, is, is, a, is a very deep inquiry. And so part of the thing that I love about the awareness practices is, is, is that in that space it's really quite clear that, that I'm not my body I mean I, there is a body the body is operating and it functions or it doesn't function but that's not where I am located and so when there's another frame of reference other than being located in my body then as my body shifts and changes and as well or is not so well it doesn't feel like it's the end of the universe yeah and so it's, it's, really, it's really helpful when there's another frame of reference because if there isn't, it feels like it's the end of the universe, you know. Now, I, I, had a, um, I knew a person in Australia and he was absolutely brilliant man, just brilliant, brilliant man. And he had, he had designed and built a solar-powered motorboat where the solar panels were computer programmed to move where the sun was so they would rotate to be uh, 
in, uh, in direct contact with the sun. And um, at the end of a very busy uh, year and a half getting this built and ready for the Olympics, he was um, on a retreat, uh, a 10-day meditation retreat. And at the end of the retreat, his wife Daphne came and picked him up. And before they left, you know, it was common, everyone, we visit the toilet. He went to the toilet and there was blood everywhere, you know. So he went to the hospital and after quite a lot of extensive tests, um, they found out that he had renal cancer and that the cancer has spread everywhere. And so it's like the doctor said, you've got three weeks, you know. It's like curtains and, you know, pull it together because you've got a really narrow window between when this is all going to wrap up. So he had this insight, which, you know, hats off to him. His brilliance was more than just computer programming, which was that, you know, I've got three weeks. What's important? You know, what's important? And what he decided was important was to find a way to adequately convey to his family and friends how much he loved them. Something happened between the retreat and taking the bodhisattva vows and his own aspiration and his own virtue and the circumstance and his impending demise where something shifted and he relaxed into a place of love. And everybody loved to hang out with Max. Everyone loved to hang out with Max. The orderlies, the gas station attendants, the grocery people, the people at the bank. Because he was radiant and luminous and you felt like you were in the presence of a very sacred being. Yeah. Now, something happened as he started to relax into that field of love where he knew his body was dying. He was not in any way confused about that. He knew that. But on some deeper level, he knew that he wasn't going anywhere. He knew that he was going to just be in this field of love. And that's, that's, that's who he was. That's where he was. That's what was happening. Yeah. Yeah. And so as our meditation opens and we experience that kind of awareness, when we get a feeling that that's actually who we are, there's a big shift of what happens when we have an ache or a pain or an illness or this or that or something hurts or we've got a diagnosis and, you know, some of the diagnoses that we have are not good news. But when we're not confused about that, then there can be this open, radiant, luminous embracing. We're not confused. That quality of unconditioned loving is not impacted by birth, aging, illness, or death. And if we know that's who we are, if we really genuinely, fundamentally, experientially know that's who we are, then we're safe. Nothing can happen. And when nothing can happen, there's much less fear about something happening. Yeah? Most of us don't live with that experience or that awareness. And so we're constantly in battle of trying to collect the things that will protect our body and get rid of the things that are going to hurt and harm us. And I'm not saying that that instinct is something that we need to override. But it's coming from the fear 
that we are fundamentally our body rather than the wisdom of understanding that fundamentally our essence is something that's unconditioned. Yes, please. Okay, I, I hope I didn't interrupt. No, no, that's good. When you say you know that you're not in your body, this, is, this sounds kind of like a metaphor or something. You know you're, you're kind of more than some of the problems and so on. But if uh, you mean you are thinking of a spiritual existence, which uh, I, I, I mean, because, well, maybe you could say a little bit. So for most of us, it's almost unfathomable to imagine what that would be like because we are so deeply kind of like, this is it, you know? This is it. What do you mean we're not, what this is not it, you know? How could it possibly be that there's another frame of reference? Yeah. So it's, it's a perfect question because it's relevant and it's probably relevant for everybody here. You know, what other frame of reference could there possibly be other than this? Yeah. And that's one of the things about awareness or that's one of the things about meditation is it illuminates the reality for what it is and the limitations for what it is, okay? So it's not like our body evaporates and doesn't exist. That's not what I'm saying. But we can see that the body arises and passes. It changes. And that's its nature. That's not a personal failing, yeah? But the awareness which is able to know those things, the awareness which receives information which able, is able to allow sensations and thoughts, okay? There's a quality of that awareness which is actually not something that... Let me shift and change with another metaphor and see if you can get it that way, yeah? So normally we are like observing the things in the space, okay? You see me and you see the lights and you see the candle and you see the space and there's decorations and there's paintings, there's floor, there's chairs, and the chairs are in a beautiful circle, yeah? And there's all of us and we get up and we walk and we stand and I talk and I sit quietly and when the sun goes down there won't be light in here. So it's changing, yeah? And most of us spend our whole life absorbed in the things. We see the light, we see the color, we see the arrangement. We notice whether we like it or we don't like it. We try and arrange it so that we like it. We try and make sure that the things are not here that we don't like. If there's something particularly smelly, we put it outside. Yeah. But we don't observe the space in the room. We don't see it. So it's not as if we have to go somewhere to see it. We have to change our focus of attention so that becomes something that we're observant of. All right? So just for a moment, see what happens if, when your eyes are open, rather than focusing on me, you focus on the space around me. Rather than focusing on the sound, focusing on the space around the sound. Now, it doesn't mean that I disappear or the sound disappears. But when we focus on the space, it changes our relationship with the object. Can you see that? It softens it a little bit. Yeah? So, let's take this metaphor a little bit more, all right? 
So because most of us are really highly focused on the things in the room, then usually what happens is, is that we are very invested in having things be safe enough, good enough, okay enough, so that I can feel okay. That's normal. But a meditation master is aware of the space, not just the space in the room, but the metaphor of the awareness in the mind, that that is their reference point. Okay? So now, if somebody who's drop-dead gorgeous walks into the room, are you going to notice the space? If somebody with a machine gun walks into the room, are you going to notice the space? Unlikely. Yeah? But a meditation master has trained themselves that they are not fixated on the object and their reaction to the object because they've got another frame of reference. When you can see the space, then you're not only driven by the fear or the desire for the object. You've got more choice. And when you have more choice, you've got a whole huge spectrum that opens up for you, which is not possible when all that's happening is your instinctual reactions being activated because of focusing on the object and not seeing anything else. Can you see the metaphor? The metaphor is a direct application in meditation. In meditation, we experience the space of awareness, just like we can experience the sky. You know, the sky, it doesn't really care about the clouds that pass through it. You know, it doesn't need to organize them. It doesn't need to have only pink ones. It can have whatever clouds come and allow them to be there and allow them to go. The sky wasn't created. The conditions that give rise to the clouds, the clouds come, they stay for a while, they pass. The sky remains. Okay. Well, these are all metaphors that give a kind of toehold, a kind of taste, a kind of inkling into what we're talking about with meditation. About that's how it's possible not to be totally identified with the body. Or that's what happens when we're not totally identified with the body. Yeah. And I agree, it takes some time. You know, I would imagine, you know, it would be unlikely that if somebody walked in with a machine gun, I would be focusing on the space. You know? Yeah. But a person who's a master can do that. And so there's this fabulous story, fabulous, where there was a, some kind of a warmongering general that was going through and pillaging and, you know, causing absolute horror in villages. And I don't know whether it was Japan or Korea, I can't remember. But his reputation preceded him, and way before he arrived someplace, everyone fled because, you know, he was vicious and cruel and ruthless, and everything was pillaged, burned, raped. It was just like a nightmare. So everybody fled. So he comes into this one area, and there's a monastery, and all the monks fled to the mountains, except for the abbot, this wizened old man. So the general comes up to him, horrified, angry, incensed, furious, in a rage, and says, don't you know who I am? Don't you know that I can run through you a thousand times without batting an eye? And the master said, and I, sir, 
can be run through a thousand times without batting an eye. Now you can't bullshit that. (laughs) And the Met General bowed his head, made a gesture of respect, and left. Because he encountered a power that was greater than his power. And he knew. He saw it, he recognized it, and he left. How could it be possible that you could be run through a thousand times without batting an eye? Because he's not identified with his body. There's another frame of reference that he's resting in that he knows is where he can locate himself. Now, any other questions, comments? Yes, please. I had this thought when it was first brought up, but if I am not my body, where am I? And my mind is not my brain, where is it? So I would encourage you to continue asking that question. It's a very important question. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.